Well, we're looking this evening at Lord's Day 47, which looks to the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, Hallowed Be Thy Name. Before we do that, I'd like to read with you from the book of Job. We're going to look at uh, about the last third of chapter 36 and then chapter 37. Now, just to set the context here, uh, we all know the introductory story to Job, how Satan sought to get Job to curse God and to reject him, first by taking all that meant something to him, right? By taking his flocks and his herds, his servants, his children even. And then when that didn't work, to take even his health, not to the point of death, but to the point of desiring death. And Job never denied God, but he grieved. And his friends came. And at first they did a great service by weeping with the one who wept, simply comforting him with their presence. But then they opened their mouths, and they added to his discomfort. And at that point, Job began to stray, because he began demanding an answer, why God would do this, why God seemed in his eyes to be acting unjustly. And it's interesting, as we go through the book of Job, uh, the challenges and the answers that his three friends give to him theologically are usually not wrong. But the spirit with which they're given is not just wrong, but sinful. And throughout all of this, there's a younger man named Elihu, saying not a word, watching, waiting for the wisdom that he longs for from these older men to whom he, or whom he respects. And when he has heard them interact with Job, has heard Job's response time and time and time again, and has not heard the wisdom that he seeks, Elihu, driven, I would suggest, by the Spirit of God, speaks the wisdom that they lacked. And what we're reading is the tail end of that uh, monologue by Elihu. So starting at verse 22 of Job 36, he says, Behold, God is exalted in His power. Who is a teacher like Him? Who has prescribed for Him His way? Or who can say, You have done wrong? Remember to extol His work, of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know Him not. The number of his years is unsearchable, for he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roars of the, the roots of the sea. For by these he judges peoples, he gives food in abundance." He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. It's crashing, declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go and his lightnings to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth, 
Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he has made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. For from its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love. He causes it to happen. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his clouds to shine? Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge, you whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind? Can you, like him, spread out the skies, hard as a cast metal mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. Shall it be told him that I would speak? Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? And now no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Therefore men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Amen. Great indeed is the Lord our God. In that light, Lord's Day 47 asks concerning the Lord's Prayer, what does the first petition mean? Hallowed be thy name means, help us to truly know you, to honor, glorify, and praise you for all your works and for all that shines forth from them, your almighty power, wisdom, kindness, justice, mercy, and truth. And it means, help us to direct all our living, what we think, say, and do, so that your name will never be blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. Amen. Beloved of God the Father in Christ, His beloved Son. When we pray the words of the Lord's Prayer, we're not actually uttering very many words. But the words that we speak are significant and meaningful. When we considered Lord's Day 46, we saw how the simple words by which we address God as our Father who art in heaven. That simple address we saw, that simple way of speaking to him, is essential in setting the proper tone to our prayer. It reminds us from the very start, this one to whom we pray is our Father, who loves us, who delights to hear from us. And yet he is our Father in heaven. Absolutely omnipotent, omniscient, and loving beyond all measure. He is able to meet our every need. Now we start our prayer with those simple words that mean so very much. And likewise with the first request. We come this evening to consider what it means to pray, Hallowed be thy name. Now what does it mean to hallow something? 
To hallow something is to make it holy. That is, to cause it to be regarded as unique, particularly set apart to honor and glorify God. We pray that God's name would be hallowed, because the name of a person or being implies his very essence. It directs the heart and mind of others to the essence and the being of the one whose name is mentioned. So we're called to pray that God himself, in all of his essence, in all of his being, would be regarded as uniquely holy, as uniquely worthy of worship and praise and honor. And in praying for that, we're confessing we cannot do so on our own. And so Lord's Day 47 reminds us that God's people must seek intentionally. By calling upon God, we must seek the spread of God's great glory. And in seeking the spread of God's great glory, we're really asking for two things. We're asking, first of all, for the ability to appreciate God's perfect goodness... And then secondly, for the ability to amplify God's praiseworthy name. So we start by looking at that request, that plea, that God would enable us to appreciate His great goodness. But remember what the goal is. As we consider that, remember the goal. It's not simply, this is a danger for seminarians, by the way. It's not simply that we marvel over what we have learned or what we have known. Kids, this is important in your catechism classes that you began today. You're going to be studying some amazing truths. And for some of you, it'll be maybe a struggle to focus on that. I encourage you to overcome that. The things that we're studying are amazing because we're studying God and His works. But for others of you, there'll be a temptation to really kind of geek out on that. Like, look at all the facts I know. Look at all the things I'm learning. Look at how they interact with one another. And that is fascinating. But that's not why we seek to know God and His works and His ways. Not just so that we can satisfy our curiosity or so that we can be smarter than the other guy, but rather so that we can bring Him the praise and the worship and the honor that He deserves. God is the one who made us. God is the one who provides for us absolutely everything we need, absolutely every moment of our lives. God is the one who, as Christians, He he saved us through Christ. He caused Jesus to pay every bit of the price to redeem us. He poured out His love upon us through the gospel, and he He indwells us by His very Spirit. If God loves us that much, if He has cared for us that abundantly, we need to devote our all to honoring Him, to praising Him, to making His name known to others. And it's so that we can do that, that we need to know Him, that we need to be able to appreciate Him. See, that's the prerequisite. We can't tell others about Him. We can't worship Him aright if we don't know who He is, if we don't know the essence of this God who has saved us. And so that's what we're really asking, that God would enable us to appreciate Him. Now, when we pray for God to do something, to meet some need, 
We know that he sometimes surprises us in the ways that he answers, but we usually should have an idea of what we expect him to do, right? As a, for instance, um, some time back I got COVID, as I think most all of us have at some point. And seeing the little results on the test strip, I prayed. I prayed that God would keep me from giving it to others, but I prayed also for healing. You know what I did after I prayed for, for healing and deliverance? I took a dose of ivermectin and vitamin C. And I put on my pajamas and I went to bed. Not because I didn't expect God himself to heal me, but because I expected him to heal me and to use the means that he normally uses to heal people from illnesses. To wit, rest and nutrition and sometimes medication. And you know what he did? Within a very short time, I was feeling well again. And I'm confident that he used those means and he used the white blood cells and all the systems within my body that he typically uses to overcome that illness. Now, how does that refer or how does that apply to hallowed be thy name? We're asking for God's help to know and appreciate him, but we shouldn't expect that he will just zap us full of knowledge. We should expect that he will give us opportunities to learn of him opportunities to study him and that he will make those opportunities effective in filling us with knowledge. So we need to pray that God would enable us to appreciate his great goodness and then we need to take up the opportunities he's given to learn about him. So when we pray, hallowed be thy name, we need to pray that and then we need to dig in first of all to scripture because scripture is absolutely filled with instruction about who God is and what he has done and what he is like. At the end of our scripture reading, we heard Elihu declare, He is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. He is clothed with awesome majesty. Or again, in Psalm 68, we're told that this God is the one who is father of the fatherless and protector of of widows. The Bible is absolutely filled with instruction like that that reveals directly the character of God which we seek to learn. But the thing is in our sin we won't read it. Left to ourselves we won't seek out that knowledge and when it is set before us we won't understand it. We'll hear the words but we won't connect them, we won't grasp them, we won't see what it really truly means about God. And so only if God reveals to us, only if He gives us a hunger for His Word, only if He by His Spirit imparts light to our eyes so that we can understand what we're reading, we can understand what we're hearing, and we can get this understanding of who God is and what He has done and what He is like. So that's what we're praying for. And then as we pray for it, we dig into his word and we see what he is like. Likewise, we need to look to see the works of God, his actions. The Bible is absolutely filled with stories about how God has acted on behalf of his people. And those stories reveal the character and the nature of our God. That's what Elihu means when he says in chapter 36, Remember to extol his work of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it, man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great. 
In other words, men see the works of God and they see from that what He's like. And that leads them to worship. We can relate to that. Kids, how many times has, have your parents admonished you to not make your schoolwork sloppy? Why are they doing that? Just because they're concerned with the eyesight of your teachers? No. It's because if you're really sloppy with your schoolwork and your papers get all smudged and, and crinkled and whatnot, it says that you don't care. The sloppiness of your works reveals something of your character, right? Likewise, if you're doing a job, you get hired to do a job, you get hired to mow lawn, and you're not careful. You leave patches where there's tall grass. When you're trimming, you don't get close to things, or you get too close, and you damage property. shows you really don't care, and that you probably won't be employed for long, Right? That sloppy work demonstrates a sloppy character. But on the other hand, if you're very intentional and very careful about doing the absolute best you can do, even when no one's watching, even in areas where it's unlikely that it's going to be noticed, that shows something very different about your character, right? It shows that you are conscientious. You're not working for the applause and the praise of men. You're working for the honor of God. Our works display our character, and so does God's work. If we want to know Him, we need to know His works. So, for instance, in uh, Psalm 135, which we just read a little bit ago, we read that God is the one who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage to His people Israel. And... Psalm 136 does the same, it says, or says something similar. It says, He it is who remembered us in our low estate, and who rescued us from our foes, through those accounts of how God rescued His people, overcame wicked people, and gave the property and the lands and the possessions of the wicked people to those who pleased God, we learn something about God's nature. We learn that He is faithful to His promises, that He's a powerful judge, and that he is loving toward those who seek him. Right? That's just a tiniest sampling. God's word is absolutely filled. Think of what we read this morning about the passage of Israel through the sea. We learn so much about God from that, don't we? We learn that he delights. He delights in his people when they trust him even before they can see his deliverance. Get up and start marching toward the sea. The sea's not open yet, but he wants them to trust him. Go down in the midst of that judgment that is the sea with the walls on either side. Because he wants us to trust him entirely for our deliverance. That army back there, don't fear them. Why? Because he is just and powerful and able to conquer our enemies for us. All the works that God shows us in Scripture... Reveal his character, but again, only if we have eyes to see, only if he has enlightened our hearts and our minds so that we can grasp the importance of it all. And it doesn't stop with Scripture. The Lord reveals himself also in the book of general revelation, the book of the world around us. Psalm 135 recalls this, teaching us to confess 
I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is that makes the clouds rise at the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from its storehouses. The psalmist appeals, in other words, to what we see in the creation. The clouds, the rain, the lightning, the hail, the snow. He uses such works to reveal something of the character of God. Now that's legitimate. If we have eyes to see and minds to understand. And so it's for that kind of enlightenment, for that kind of understanding that we're asking. Because after all, the natural man sees nothing of that. He looks out, he sees the same world that we see. And does he acknowledge God from it? No. Foolishly, stubbornly, he denies it all. He says it's all random. It's all without purpose. It's an accident. Oops. No connection, no purpose, no plan. Look at all the varieties of leaves on those trees and how very similar they are all. They all are from species to species to species, and yet how different, how unique each one is, how each one fits a role within the ecosystem. And that's not with a plan. That's without any intentionality. Really? But the natural man refuses to see that because of his sin, because of his hardness of heart. He has become ingrained, or it has become ingrained in him that it cannot have a pattern, it cannot have a purpose because otherwise there's a God that I need to serve and that can't be the case. So we pray for eyes to see what the creation was intended to reveal to us. And if we pray, God will answer. He'll show us in history the things that history reveals about Him. For instance, Psalm 68 says, Reign in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. It's talking about how God broke a drought. How He sent rain at just the time His people needed so that they would be provided, so that their crops would not die, so that they would continue to endure. It looks on the history of God's people and celebrates what it shows about God's faithfulness and His mercy toward us. It's not only in the Bible that we see that. Look in the history of the church. How God has continually, often amazingly, preserved His people from the hand of enemies. How He has raised up those who were strong adversaries against the church and made them to be powerful servants of His. How He has taken the church in times of decline and caused it to rise up. Even the history beyond the church. Look at America. Look at its founding, how perfectly God provided for this land, how he raised up leaders to stand against tyranny, how he established it. Now, did he establish it exactly the way we would have wanted? No. But he established it in a way that allowed the church to be preserved and nurtured and built so that missionaries went out throughout all the world from this land because of the freedom, because of the prosperity, because of the peace that he established in this place. All of that we can see looking on history. Nor is it only history. The sciences, if we have eyes to see, the sciences reveal God. In Job 36, we heard Elihu use biology to regard God's nature. How he distills water into the clouds. 
And then in His perfect time, in His perfect way, He causes the rain to fall upon the earth. How the thunder and the lightning proclaim the might and the glory of God. In Job 37, He talks about the cold and the seasons. How God is the one who sends the freezing wind, who causes the the waters to freeze. And it reveals His provision, His timing, His plan. The natural sciences, chemistry, reveals the creative genius of our God in the structure and interaction of atoms and molecules and chemical reactions. Astronomy reveals the same in the formation and the orbits and the gravitational pull of the planets and the stars. Likewise, mathematics, which reveals our God to be an orderly God. Sociology, which shows how God is reflected in man who is made to reveal his image. And then there's economics and logic and grammar. The list is endless. All of it reveals God reveals His character to those who have eyes to see and hearts to understand. So we need to pray that we will. We need to pray for His help to appreciate His perfect goodness. And when He gives that, and when we use that, we will sing with Paul in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, and we will worship. And that's the other half of what we're praying here. Having asked for his help to appreciate the perfect goodness of God, we're to pray then for help to amplify his praiseworthy name. You see, it's not enough. Young people know this. It is not enough to simply know who God is and what he is like. God calls us to apply our knowledge of him in order to bring him glory. The Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, says this is why you were saved. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You have been set aside and uh, reconciled to God so that you may proclaim, so that you may make known, so that you can magnify his glory. In fact, that's the highest purpose that we could ever have. Elihu urges us to remember in Job 36, verse 24. Remember to extol his work of which men have sung. Because that's our calling. That's our task. So this prayer for amplifying God's glory, it's a comprehensive request. It covers all that we are, every aspect of life, every aspect of our being. Our calling to glorify God is not limited in any way. It's not limited to what we do on Sunday. It's important, crucial in fact, that we set aside our work, that we set aside our daily concerns, and we gather with the people of God to worship on the Lord's Day. That is the pinnacle of our calling as Christians, but it is not the only calling. We are called to worship and glorify and sing His praises on Monday and Tuesday and Friday. It's not limited to what we're doing. We're not called to glorify God only when we're singing psalms. Or only in our private life. We hear politicians say that, right? Well, I mean, that's what I believe in my private life. But in my public life, no, no, no. We're not divided. We are one whole. The Christian faith is, involves a calling that we never depart from our calling to glorify God. That means that whether we're teaching catechism class or writing a law or building a house, or teaching children in a classroom, 
or clearing snow off a roadway or out in the woods hunting. Every single thing we do, we're called to do in a manner that glorifies and honors God. There's no shutting it off. There mustn't be any shutting it off. But understanding what that looks like is going to require wisdom, is going to require discernment so that we can see how God would have us glorify Him here, now, in this way. If we're writing laws, well, it's going to involve opening this word so that the principles of the law arise from the principles of God's word. Because we're going to be ruled by someone, either by God or by men. Far better that we be ruled by God and by His principles, right? But now, where do we find that when we're pouring a concrete driveway? But we're going to seek to use the gifts God has given us to make sure that that driveway is beautiful and functional. That we're being fair and just, giving everything that that customer has paid for and more doing our absolute best for them, reflecting how God gives us far more than we deserve, far more than we even need or think we need. All of life is to be involved in glorifying God, and we need God to help us understand what that looks like. In part, this is a negative request. In other words, we need to ask God to restrain us from doing that which would dishonor Him. Kids, you remember the story of David and Bathsheba. David sinned gravely in taking as his wife, as his girlfriend initially, a woman who was married to another man, but then beyond that, trying to cover up his sin, even at the cost of her husband's life. And doing all of that, well, he only got away with doing all of that, or he thought he got away with it, because he was the king, abusing his authority in a manner that was absolutely horrific and abusive, abusive to the nation, abusive to Bathsheba. It was absolutely wicked what he did. But what made it worst of all was the effect. Remember, he's a leader among God's people. Everything he does is public. And the effect of that sin on God's name, God's reputation. When Nathan revealed to him his sin, David immediately repented, confessed what he had done, asked for forgiveness. And Nathan says, you're forgiven, however, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. We think how harsh. But listen, that had to happen because otherwise the nations seeing this and the people of God seeing this would be forced to conclude that our God is not just. That He overlooks the sins of some people. That He'll turn a blind eye to the absolute wanton wickedness of those who He chooses to. And so that child had to die as a just consequence of David's sin. And it wasn't God who signed the death warrant of that child. It was David in his sin. And so we need to pray that God would prevent us from those sins that would dishonor him. Those sins that would cause his name to be scorned. Those sins that would misrepresent him to the world. 
I keep calling on the young people. I'm not trying to pick on you guys, but you're at a pivotal point in your life, right? Children, also. You've grown up hearing that you are a Christian and you should identify yourself as a Christian and that's appropriate. You were baptized. Those promises were set upon you, were made to identify you. But as a consequence of that, when you go out there as a Christian, as someone who everybody knows, well, he doesn't work on the Lord's Day. He goes to worship. He has to go home and do his catechism and learn about God. His family does devotions around the table. They're different than we are. And then you go out and you party like they do. You go out and act like you're married with some gal and you're not. Or you go out and you cheat your boss. Or you talk smack about people. Or you gossip. What are you teaching them about God? And so we need to pray that God would protect us from ourselves, that God would protect our confession from our sinfulness, that God would restrain us lest we defile His name. And folks, every one of us needs to pray that. Because every one of us, left to ourselves, will utterly mischaracterize and defile the name of God. So we need to pray that He would, on the negative side, restrain us, but on the positive side, that He would show us opportunities to honor Him. Naturally, in our self-centeredness, our desire is always to turn the spotlight on us. Look at what a good job I did. Look at how, how good an employee I am, or how good a husband I am, or how good a son I am. In order for us to turn the spotlight on God, we're going to need help. And so that's our calling. We ask God to make us a conduit, to make us a a means of pouring out honor and glory on Him, not on us. That's what we find Elihu doing in the passage we read from Job. Elihu, he's been watching and listening and analyzing what Job and his friends have said. And what he sees, what he hears, it disturbs him because he's been waiting for wisdom that helps him and helps them to make sense of what's happened to Job. And instead, all he hears from Job's friends is, Job, you did this. Job, you did that. Job, you did the other. And all he hears from Job is, no, I'm righteous. No, I'm blameless. No, I'm... And he says, stop it. You're looking at men. You're looking at the flesh. You should be looking at God. And so Job takes that opportunity to point them away from themselves and away from the moment and away from the... And pointing them to heaven. Look at God. Look how righteous He is. Look how holy He is. Look how powerful He is. Look how good He is. If He has done this, if He has allowed this, if He has ordained all that Job has experienced, then it must be good and it must be for His glory. He is the one, says Elihu, who is clothed with awesome majesty. So stop doubting Him and stop looking away from Him. And, and you see how Elijah take, or Elihu takes that opportunity And redirects these men whom he respects, these men whom he looks up to, and he turns them to him. We can do that. If God gives us eyes to see, perhaps you have the ear of a legislator or three. And they're so concerned about what they can do, or what Trump can do, or what Whitmer is doing. And you can redirect the focus. No, no, no. We don't need Trump or Biden. We don't need 
Whitmer or whoever is against Whitmer. We need God. We don't need this focus group or that lobbyist. We need the Lord and His mercy and His direction and His blessing. And likewise at work, if only we can get this big contract, if only we can... No, no, no. If only we can have God at the center of what we do, if only we can have God at the center of our business, then it will profit. But until then, it will not. And in our family, if only we can just get this right, this, this, the, the new and best homeschool practice, or if only we can get the kids into the right school, or if only... No. If only we can have Christ at the center of our lives. If only we can be looking to His Word and His principles and guiding them up in that, then if they get A's or C's or whatever, if they're knowing the Lord and they're confessing the Lord, then they're doing what the Lord has given them to do. And so we're praying that God would give us eyes to see how can I glorify you here, now, in this, so that with Elihu we can cry out, The Almighty is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear Him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Instead, He regards those who are wise in Christ. Those who seek His help, who seek His direction, who seek to honor and glorify Him. Thus our prayer. God's children seek the spread of of their Father's great glory. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater calling, no greater task, no greater occupation that we could possess. So let it be our earnest prayer that we would be able to better appreciate God so that we can better amplify the glory of God in all that we do. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are, you are all in all. You are more gracious and good and glorious than we can fathom. We pray that you would enable us to recognize that, to understand who you are and what you are like and what you have done and why that matters. And that you would give us the courage and the desire to amplify your glory to all the world. Finding ways in our work and in our friendships and in our family lives and in our private lives. To tell others what an amazing and glorious God you are, even in the way that we behave. Lord, make us to be vessels for your worship and your glory. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.